Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link from fizz.org. We've got a new glow-in-the-dark material that can track the path of drugs through the human body. Ooh. Like, yeah, right? Really glow in the dark? Or like we x-ray you and then we can see it? I mean, yes. Because if it's really glow in the dark, that's awesome. That's like a little light flowing through your veins. Like that looks cool. Super fair. I think you do need a special decoder machine to actually visibly see it. So we're not just raving all the time. But what we're doing now is combining a material that's already used to deliver medication to specific sites in the body with another that glows in the dark. Assistant Professor Li Jia Lu and graduate student Ellie W. T. Shu were able to see the interaction between the luminescent optical system and the drug carrier. They published their findings in the journal Physical Chemistry, Chemical Physics, which is one of the most amazingly <laughs> titled journals I've ever heard of. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> so the probe designed by them emits near infrared light and can be tracked by standard bioimaging techniques. The system is safer than other probes, which need a source of radiation Mm -hmm. to produce light, which is even better, right? There are elements of this research that cannot be achieved without the use of synchrotron technology. And that piece of the puzzle is very important in terms of understanding the structure of the materials. But this could pave the way to a lot more effective medication and hopefully reducing all those side effects that, at least in the American television market, we get bombarded with those advertisements could cause diarrhea, dry mouth, eventual death, right? So maybe if we can actually target drugs to do specifically what they are needing to do, hey, maybe we can do with fewer of those. Yeah, I mean, the big question is, is a synchrotron cheaper than an MRI? Because I, mm. I just had to have an MRI on my hip. And I got to tell you, if there was a cheaper way to do it, it would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody would be game for that. But hey, maybe there's a hot market DIY 3D printed synchrotron. <laughs> See yourself glow. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from MIT Press Reader. And this is about the curious case of Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Hmm. hmm. So, some 40 years after Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was first published in 1866, accounts of hallucinations similar to those described by Lewis Carroll began to appear in the medical literature. In 1904, William Spratling, one of the first American epileptologists, published case studies of several patients for whom everything looked bigger just before their seizures. Hmm. In 1907, the great British neurologist William Gowers also reported epilepsy patients who perceived objects to look twice their size during the aura preceding their seizures. And in 1913, the German neurologist Hermann Oppenheim noted that he had seen a case of genuine hemicrania, or one-sided headache, in which there was an indescribable feeling of detachment of the trunk after an hour or even a day of spontaneous dizziness. 
Hmm. Yikes. At first I was like, hey, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. This sounds kind of fun. Nope. 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 <laughs> yeah. Very disruptive. <laughs> the American neurologist Caro Lipman noted in a 1952 paper published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease that the great variety of hallucinations experienced during the migraine aura were still little known to the medical profession. And he then went on to describe seven cases. Hmm. <laughs> One case is that of a 38-year-old housewife whose headaches began during and had recurred ever since her second pregnancy at the age of 19. Lippmann wrote, With these symptoms often occurs a sensation of the neck extending out on one side for a foot or more. At other times, her hip or flank balloons out with or after the headache. Very occasionally, she has an attack where she feels small, about one foot high. But she says she knows the distortion isn't real because she looks in the mirror to see. (laughs) Another is that of a woman in her 90s who stated that she had had classic migraine headache with nausea and vomiting from childhood, who complains frequently of her left ear ballooning out six inches or more a few hours before onset of a mild migraine headache. This feeling of ear distortion did not bother the patient, however, because she, too, could see in the mirror that it did not exist. In a third case, a 23-year-old secretary described her hallucinations in a letter to Lippmann. About every six months, I would have a major attack that lasted for weeks and required hospitalization. It was at these times that I experienced the sensation that my head has grown to tremendous proportions and was so light that it floated up to the ceiling, although I was sure it was still attached to my neck. (laughs) Yeah. This sensation would pass with the migraine, but would leave me with a feeling that I was very tall. When walking down the street, I would think I would be able to look down on the tops of others' heads, and it was very frightening and annoying not to see as I was feeling. The sensation was so real that when I would see myself in a window or full-length mirror, it was quite a shock to realize that I was still my normal height of under five feet. Another patient described to Lippmann a very peculiar feeling of being very close to the ground as she walked along, as though she were short and wide with explicit reference to Lewis Carroll, calling it her Tweedledum or Tweedledee feeling. (laughs) The remaining case reports likewise include descriptions that sound remarkably like those in Carroll's Wonderland book. The illusion of being taller than I actually am in relation to ordinary objects. My head would seem far above my hands or much larger than the rest of my body. Another quote, my body is as if someone had drawn a vertical line separating the two halves. The right (laughs) half seems to be twice the size of the left half. I wonder how I am going to get my hat on when one side of my head is so much bigger (laughs) than the other. I just like the fact that of all the problems that would come about from having half your body be way bigger, the biggest concern was how am I going to get my hat on? Like, there are other issues you might want to look into. Oh, for sure. And it has to translate into some pretty awkward-seeming movements, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you believe that half of your body has ballooned in height or width, you're going to carry yourself differently. You're going to take bigger steps on one side trying to catch yourself. (laughs) Yeah, and it reminds me of an example you gave, Jen, of a friend with directional name synesthesia, Mm -hmm. where she would get confused because she would associate names with certain directions and like it would mess with her like actual sense of direction if I'm recalling that correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And also like if your name felt like it was on the left but you were standing on the right, she was like this isn't correct. This is I, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, woof. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. sound fun by any means. Like Yeah, and patients who reported such hallucinations had hitherto often been dismissed as delusional, but Lipman astutely noted the similarity of their experiences to Alice's as described by Carol. 
I would hesitate to report these hallucinations, which I have recorded in my notes on migraine, had not more than 80 years ago a great and famous writer set them down in immortal fiction form, he wrote hmm. in his concluding 1952 paper. Alice in Wonderland contains a record of these and many other migraine hallucinations. Lewis Carroll was himself a sufferer from classic migraine headaches. Ah. Hmm. Despite this long history, Alice in Wonderland syndrome remained obscure until relatively recently. In the past two decades or so, scientists and clinicians have started to pay more attention to it, due partly to advances in functioning neuroimaging technology, which enable them to investigate the relationship between symptoms and brain activity. The early reports typically described the symptom as hallucinations, but today they are more accurately described as distortions of visual perception and body representations arising from a perceptual disorder. Alice in Wonderland syndrome is thought to be very rare. Fewer than 200 case descriptions have been published in the medical literature since Todd named it as such in 1955. In children, the syndrome is most often associated with encephalitis caused by infection with the Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. In adults, migraine is the most common cause, with the syndrome occurring in approximately 15% of those with migraines. Other causes include brain tumor, brain hemorrhage, scarlet fever, stroke, depression, and schizophrenia, and in 2011, doctors in Israel reported the case of an 11-year-old who developed Alice in Wonderland syndrome after being infected with swine flu, or H1N1 influenza. Hmm. The syndrome has also been reported during sensory deprivation, as well as during hypnotherapy and the altered states of consciousness that occur just before falling asleep and just before waking. But patients have reported myriad other symptoms, including the inability to perceive color, enhanced depth perception, objects appearing rotated by 90 or 180 degrees, and seeing multiple images as if looking through an insect's compound eye. I, I'm glad that they at least can understand that it's not real. I mean, it's bad yeah. enough to be like, ugh, now I gotta deal with this and try to walk with the world <laughs> looking like this. But to also be genuinely confused would be so much worse, so. Yeah, I mean, it's nice at least that we know enough about it to, you know, address treatment as opposed to just being like, well, can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. seems so often the case with these very strange sorts of neurological conditions. Brains are messed up, man. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's too is. complicated. Too much going on up there. Yeah, we don't need all these neurons. Come on. Like, <laughs> well, COVID is listening. That's Just right. a few more infections, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next article comes from a slightly unusual place called the World Sensorium Conservancy, which you're going to love, Angie. It's a nonprofit <laughs> that focuses on raising awareness and protecting what they call iconic aromatic plants which Ooh. yeah they have risen to high cultural status and built brand identity within their countries through scent galvanizing cultural identity and becoming symbols of home for their citizens hmm. so they do a lot but aside from all that they also put out this newsletter called plantings which covers new research in the world of plants and that's how we've ended up here today the article is called why are plants green which it turns out is interesting because by all rights, plants actually shouldn't be green. Huh. Obviously, in the most basic sense, plants are green because they reflect green wavelengths of light and absorb all the others, right? That's why anything is any color. But this is strange because absorbing light is what plants do to survive. And most of the energy that the sun radiates is actually in the green part of the spectrum. Like what they're doing is very inefficient and it kind of doesn't make evolutionary sense that they would reflect the best light for them and only absorb less energetic light. And biologists have sometimes suggested that maybe the green light is too powerful for plants to use without getting harmed. 
But even after decades of molecular research on the light harvesting machinery in plants, they still couldn't establish any evidence for this. Until, Mm. finally, in 2020, researcher Nathaniel Gabor and his colleagues figured it out. So the first step of photosynthesis happens in a light harvesting complex, which is a mesh of proteins with pigments embedded in them. In green plants, these pigments are chlorophyll, and this light harvesting complex is actually in constant motion, which Gabor describes as like jello. And these little wave movements are actually a critical part of how the energy flows through the pigments and ultimately passes on to a reaction center where it starts to be converted into chemical energy. And the research team discovered that this movement is actually very sensitive to the amount of energy coming into it. Any fluctuation in the intensity of light, say from changes in the amount of shade, affects the rhythm of the wiggle and the flow of energy through it. The ideal state is just a nice, steady push of energy coming in, and kind of like an electrical circuit, a surge of energy is very bad. It will cause overcharging effects that lead to free radicals and damaged tissues in the plant. So they developed a model that showed that while, yes, plants would be getting more energy from green light, any flickering in that light would represent a correspondingly bigger spike or drop in that energy. And either one is bad. They can handle low energy and they can handle high energy. It's just that whiplash change that causes damage to the plant. But the model went even deeper than that, because if you imagine a plant like in the shade underneath a tree and the branches above are blowing around in the wind, you're going to see a lot of back and forth between shade and sun. And in order to keep the most even, steady input of energy possible, the model predicted that you would want to be collecting very specific ranges of blue and red light that would balance each other out and keep the total energy coming in at a really steady rate. And so then they went and looked at various green plants and found that, yes, there are actually two types of chlorophyll called A and B, which are responsible for absorbing this narrow range of red light or blue light, respectively. What's more... Those ideal ranges would actually be different if the plant were a different color. And sure enough, the model accurately predicted the maximum energy absorption ranges of plants with red leaves, yellow leaves, and even a bunch of photosynthetic organisms like purple and green bacteria that live in lakes. So in every instance, the organism had evolved not for maximum efficiency, but maximum stability. And Gabor says this actually could be a key insight into solar panels. Because one of the big problems we still face is the long-term robustness of these photovoltaic cells. Basically, we may end up agreeing with the plants that long-term stability is more important than absorbing as much energy as fast as possible. Hmm. You mean like expecting constant exponential growth as a long-term solution is not as sustainable as something more modest and efficient? What? The plants have figured it out. The other thing that the model predicts is what photosynthesis would probably look like on planets that orbit a different star that emits different wavelengths of light than our own does. So if we ever get to the point of farming in another solar system, we could theoretically use this information to develop plant species that would be more likely to survive. Oh, sweet. I want space plants. Yeah. I mean, they might not be green, but, you know, that's all right. That's totally what I would hope for in a space plant. Come on. That's right. You want it to be cool colors. Although I think (laughs) there's something about, like, because we've evolved 
with most plants being green, we have a certain affinity for green. So like maybe if all the plants were purple, we'd be like just constantly disturbed all the time. <laughs> like it would be it would be its own version of Alice in Wonderland syndrome where we're like, no, <gasps> the plants aren't the right yes. color. I feel wrong. <laughs> nah, the gastro pub community would jump on purple lettuce. I mean, I, OK, we already have purple lettuce, right, but something but, even yeah. weirder. Right. Blue apples. Whatever. There you go. I need a blue apple for sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, let's stick with biology because interestingengineering.com lives up to its URL with this article. Every sperm for itself is a myth. New uh, research finds. <laughs> are they like working together? Like <laughs> it's conspiracy? <laughs> well, more like cooperation because sure. listen, it is a <laughs> it's a survival trait. Right. It does kind of contrast against this, you know, American individualism, rugged do it on your own, may the best survive. Well, guess what? <laughs> Sperm cells swimming in a pack may help them to push upstream through thick vaginal mucus, according to new research published on Frontiers. All right, we're going to be using some adult language here, but this is just <laughs> so hugely fascinating yeah. that the takeaway overrides my 12-year-old inner giggle boy. Okay, <laughs> so the discovery may provide new ways to aid in diagnosing infertility through future research that focuses on the quality of female reproductive fluids and the degree to which sperm congregate. So we've had this long-held view of the singular Michael Phelps-esque swimming sperm, right? <laughs> it's, it's often been represented as individuals racing against each other in competition to fertilize an egg. But the problem with this stems from looking in the wrong place. In other words, we get this information from a microscope, and sperm don't really do a whole lot underneath a microscope because... Most sperm action happens inside the female reproductive system like right. it's supposed to, right? Because of this, we've had several persistent misconceptions, like the notion that sperm competition is a constant aspect of reproduction. Now, this new research proves that sperm embrace teamwork. <laughs> That's my, my Oprah voice, because this is a big deal, y'all. All right. Chi Quan Tung, a physicist at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University and his colleagues, noticed this clustering in their laboratory in a previous study they had completed in 2017. So from this study, the group knew that bull sperm, which is similar to human sperm, formed clusters, but also those clusters couldn't swim faster than the individuals. So they didn't think there was any you know, apparent advantage as to why the clustering was happening. Tung explains in a statement to new scientists, quote, in biology, when cells and structures do something, they should probably get something out of it. So that became the question we were asking ourselves. What are these sperm getting out of it? Right. So to answer that enigma, the researchers put 100 million fresh bull sperm into a silicon tube filled with fluid that oh. mimicked the cervical and uterine mucus of cows. <laughs> According to Tung, this fluid, and I'm sorry, the researcher's name is T-U-N-G, so I apologize right. for the sentence. According to Tung, the fluid had the consistency of melted cheese. Okay, we're on. Oh, okay. Wow, I so really am just sitting in those last couple sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best, y'all. I'm trying to get through this in straight face. So they've got this tube. It's full of the stuff. And then the scientists use a syringe pump to create two speeds of flow. And what they found was that the clustered sperm swam in a straighter line than the individual sperm where there was no flow. 
So they also found that individual sperm could not move upstream in the intermediate flow, but the clusters could. And when the flow was high, the clustered sperm were much more effective at pushing through the approaching current than the individual sperm, which typically got carried away by the heavy stream. Hmm. So think about cyclists that ride together. You've got that like downdraft or whatever. Mm. It's a similar property here. Well, it's like birds flying in a V. Like the one at the head is taking the hardest, but the rest are kind of getting caught in that backdraft and they're able to Mm -hmm. just coast along a little easier. And even more importantly with that bird metaphor, the one in the front doesn't stay in the front the whole time. Right. Mm -hmm. They take turns. They rotate. And that's exactly what the team found in this particular instance as well. There was never a single leader sperm. There's no (laughs) alpha beta situation (laughs) happening here. Okay. (laughs) Rather, the groups were highly dynamic with sperm frequently entering and exiting their cluster and moving around with them. Well, and it makes sense because, I mean, yes, you're different sperm, but you're all the same genes, basically. Exactly. And so it's to your advantage Theoretically, if they had brains that could think about it, to, to, you know, all share the effort and make sure somebody gets there, even if it's not mm-hmm. you. And, and if we are going to be talking about sort of the natural selection of this method, then the cooperative sperm mm. are more likely to succeed than the sociopathic sperm. Not to say that, <laughs> that, you know, those don't come in one or the other, or maybe like your whole cash is sociopathic. And so it doesn't matter if A or B goes in there, but... <laughs> You know, just just trying to change your worldview a little bit here. We got to live on this planet together. The sooner we learn to love that, the better. Didn't mean to make that rhyme. Okay, next link. Next link. This article comes to us from neurosciencenews.com, and it's titled, The Study Shows Transmission of Epigenetic Memory Across Multiple Generations. Yes, this is way up my alley. So if you've heard about the idea of epigenetic memory or epigenetic trauma is a big topic, it's about the experiences that we have that our parents and ancestors can have that still transfer through our DNA without actually being a sort of low level code change to the DNA. Mm -hmm. And this article goes into a study they did that actually demonstrates this. So, a new study by researchers at UC Santa Cruz shows how a common type of epigenetic modification can be transmitted via sperm, staying on topic, not only from parents <laughs> to offspring, but to the next generation, grand offspring, as well. The study, published the week of September 26th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, focused on a particular modification of a histone protein that changes the way DNA is packaged in the chromosomes. This widely studied epigenetic mark called H3K27ME3 is known to turn off or repress the affected genes and is found in all multicellular animals from humans to the nematode worm C. elegans used in this study. In the resulting offspring, the researchers observed abnormal gene expression patterns with genes on the paternal chromosomes inherited from the sperm turned on or upregulated in the absence of the repressive epigenetic mark. This led to tissues turning on genes they would not normally express. For example, germline tissue, which produces eggs and sperm, turned on genes normally expressed in neurons. In the grand offspring, the researchers observed a range of developmental effects, including some worms that were completely sterile. This mix of outcomes is due to how chromosomes get distributed during cell divisions that produce sperm and eggs, resulting in many different combinations of chromosomes that can be passed on to the next generation. The co-first authors of the paper are Kiyomi Kaneshiro, who worked on the study as a graduate student in Strom's lab and is currently a postdoc researcher at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and USCS Research Associate Thea Egelhofer. 
The co-authors also include bioinformaticist Andreas Rechtsteiner and graduate student Chad Cockrum. <laughs> I mean, it's nice that they named all their undergraduates. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. I figured <laughs> I'll throw them in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is a little more, you know, deep into the biomedicine, but it demonstrates in a very kind of targeted and clear way how mm-hmm. epigenetic trauma or modification in general can happen. This mm-hmm. is so critical to get actual data <laughs> points yeah. instead yeah. of just working off a theory. I'm I'm personally obsessed with epigenetics because my mother escaped during the Vietnam War, and we recently found that my biological paternal grandfather was a Holocaust refugee. And so wow. ever since, yeah, I'm basically 75% war refugee epigenetically <laughs> speaking, <Wow. laughs> which really helps to put and frame some of the health issues or even mental health things that mm-hmm. I've encountered, like neurotic anxiety. Okay, maybe it's because a lot of my ancestors figured out that when the vibe was off, we needed to bail. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, it's actually a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Like It feels like, oh, this is a terrible thing to pass on, but actually it can be helpful if mm-hmm. your you know, offspring are probably going to be in a similar environment to you that your body mm-hmm. assumes. And so it's like, no, you do need to be vigilant and you need mm-hmm. to be nervous and you need to get out because that's the only way you're going to survive. Exactly. It's almost like we have these superpower mutations that often feel like both blessing and curse. But if you're Mm -hmm. able to recognize it for what it is, you stand a better chance of pointing it in a healthier direction so it can be more of a superpower instead of a handicap. But, you know, that's where my sci-fi brain is going with it, because I got to believe in something good. (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't know if your grandparents had any trauma, you can just assume they did. (laughs) Look, it's not my fault, you know? Yeah, chances are good. (laughs) Hey, you know, rampant alcoholism was definitely a thing in the 50s, so (laughs) nobody is safe here. That's right. And one of the nice flip sides, potentially, is that if epigenetic trauma is a thing, then perhaps also beneficial epigenetic modifications can occur as well. But naturally, you know. Epigenetic healing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. precisely. Obviously, you know, it's uh, not quite as valuable to study stuff where everything's going fine. Uh, Right, So, you know, let's, let's start with some problems we can solve. But so if I meditate a lot, then I can someday tell my grandchildren, you're welcome. I did that for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And do it with a sneer. That that keeps oh, with the meditation tradition for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. Next link. Next link. All right. This next one comes from Vice and it's called Scientists Made a Breakthrough on Life's Origin and It Could Change Everything. And we are talking really specifically here about that exact moment in Earth's history where non-living chemicals spontaneously formed into something that qualified as alive, which the article describes as not just a mystery, but perhaps the mystery, existentially speaking. And we do know a little bit about what must have happened in that we know we need for individual amino acids to chain together into peptides, which are a crucial building block of life. Up until now, however, we've only been able to make that process happen in the lab with the help of certain catalysts or with modified versions of amino acids that couldn't actually lead to life. But all that's changed thanks to a new study from Purdue University that demonstrates these peptides can form spontaneously under circumstances that are very specific but not actually rare at all. And that is wherever water meets the atmosphere in small droplets, like when a wave crashes against a rock and forms a misty spray into the air. Mm. And of course, that's happening all the time today. But it was also definitely happening a lot back when Earth was a big old water planet and life was just starting to form. 
So the team was able to reconstruct the possible formation of these peptides by running droplet fusion experiments that simulate how two water droplets collide with each other in the air, which senior study author R. Graham Cooks described as like two kids with garden hoses spraying each other. (laughs) And the reason the water has to be in tiny droplets has to do with something called the water paradox, which has plagued scientists from the beginning on this issue. And the paradox is, on the one hand, we know that proteins require a certain dehydration process in order to form. But on the other, we know that life formed in a literal ocean where dehydration couldn't happen. But Cooks and his team showed that when water is sprayed into the air in tiny droplets, the surface of each droplet experiences on a tiny scale that sudden dehydration effect that is exactly what is necessary to form those amino acids into peptides. And of course, as Cooks pointed out, this has implications for finding life on other planets as well. For one thing, it reinforces our belief that water is necessary for life, but also he says we should be looking for planets with rough seas and not calm ones. And closer to home, this discovery is also going to be very useful for the medical community because apparently forming new peptides is an important part of creating new drugs to try out. And the equipment that they've developed for these droplet fusion experiments can be used to do that in a much more efficient way than they've apparently been doing it so far. So, you know, yeah, once again, science has shown us that something we thought was incredibly rare and special is actually happening all the time around us. And every time you go to the beach, you might just be showering yourself in brand new peptides the world has never seen. Like, (laughs) it again, it reinforces that idea that, like, life is everywhere. We haven't Mm -hmm. found it yet, but once we start finding it, it's going to be like, oh, yeah. All the planets have life on them. I love that they've been able to kind of like isolate and identify marine peptides in particular because that's been such a buzzword in the like beauty cosmetic industry when it comes Hmm. to skincare. I'm thinking of La Mer in particular, which is like Ah. extremely fancy, super expensive, overpriced. The whole thing is that they've got this unique marine peptide complex. So, okay, you know. Yeah. You could be putting alien life on your face. You don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I want to glow like a jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're back to glow in the dark people. Yeah, it all comes full circle. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, Ars Technica has the goods about something we've all been wondering about. Darth Vader's voice. Yes, Darth Vader's <laughs> voice will be AI generated from now on, specifically ah. with a program called Respeecher. It is a cloned voice effect that can be performed by another actor. James Earl Jones signed off on allowing Disney to replicate his vocal performance as Darth Vader in future projects. Jones is 91 years old. He has sure. voiced the iconic Star Wars villain for 45 years. Mm-hmm. All, you know, and it kicked off in the beginning with Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope in 1977, and ended as recently with a brief line of dialogue in 2019's Rise of Skywalker. Matthew Wood, a supervising sound editor at Lucasfilm, said during an interview with Vanity Fair, quote, he had mentioned he was looking into winding down this particular character. So how do we move forward? Well, the answer was Respeecher, a voice cloning product from a company in Ukraine that uses deep learning to model and replicate human voices in a way that is nearly indistinguishable from the real thing. Lucasfilm had used Respeecher to clone Mark Hamill's voice for The Mandalorian, and the company thought, hey, same technology would be ideal for a major appearance of Darth Vader that would require dozens of lines of dialogue. 
So they worked from archival recordings of Jones. Interestingly, during production on the show, Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, and Ukraine is where Reese Feature comes from. <laughs> so yeah. there were a lot of challenges for the Reese Feature team. Despite the war, Reese Beecher is reportedly working on other secret projects, quite possibly <laughs> for Disney. So expect more Darth Vader in the future. And yes, if you're wondering about this dystopian worry <laughs> that could be posed from this, yes, Reese Beecher is aware that this kind of technology could pose significant security, social engineering, and even copyright problems. So they do have an ethics statement. Um, the company uh -uh. says the firm, quote, does not allow any deceptive uses of our technology and does not use voices without permission when this could impact the privacy of the subject or their ability to make a living, which is a really interesting kind of preemptive huh. call out there. Yeah. Of course, voice cloning technology will not always be limited to speech or labs. The open source world is catching up rapidly fast with yeah. projects like co-recast. And it's likely only a matter of time before this particularly potent genie leaves the bottle for good. But hey, by then, we can all be Darth Vader. Silver linings, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be fairly egotistical to assume that anyone would want to imitate any of our voices, but we certainly have enough material for them to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that voice recognition passwords are getting phased out because I know oh, that yeah. like some financial institutions will have like a voice print or things like that. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about sneakers and like, <laughs> my voice is my passport. Verify me. <laughs> but I mean, like, Imagine what this could mean for ASMR. You know, you could just be some schlub and you get like a lovely breathy voice. And I'm the wrong person to talk about that. I hate ASMR <laughs> so, so, so much. Oh, my God. I just like the sound of whispering. There's something deeply unpleasant about it to me. I've like and it made that game telephone when you were a kid really, really hard because like kids are leaning into whisper and I'm like, ah, just, I hate, I'm, uh. <laughs> yeah, I was bad at it. That's <laughs> what it boiled down to because I would lean away and try not to listen to them because I didn't want to hear it. So. <laughs> Too intimate. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org and it's titled Vampires and Public Health. Uh-oh. <laughs> At the end of the 19th century, the people of Rhode Island were drained by a mysterious force that caused them to slowly waste away. So let's get into that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nellie Vaughn was buried in West Greenwich, Rhode Island in 1889. Soon after her burial, Nellie was exhumed from her grave at the family's farm at her mother's request and moved to the town cemetery. Things took an odd turn not long after her reburial. Nellie was accused of being a vampire. <laughs> Vampires were a concern throughout 19th century England, and Nellie was just one of many people suspected of occupying the space between the living and the dead. As anthropologist George R. Stetson explained in 1896, New England was just one of the many places around the globe that believed in spirits which leave the tomb generally in the night to torment the living. Rhode Island in particular, Stetson writes, was distinguished by the prevalence of this remarkable superstition. One accused vampire, Mercy Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island, died in 1892. Her mother and sister had also passed away, and soon after, her brother became very sick. The bodies were exhumed, and while Mercy's mother and sister were fully decomposed, Mercy was not. 
This demonstrated, the townspeople reasoned, that she was a vampire rising from her grave to slowly squeeze the life out of her brother. I mean, what else could it be? Come on, let's use logic, right? Consequently, her heart and liver were removed and burned, and her ailing brother then consumed her ashes in (gasps) hope of saving himself, but nonetheless died a few months later. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. Another Rhode Island resident, Sarah Tillengast, was also accused of vampirism shortly after her death in 1799. As had happened with Brown, Sarah's body was exhumed by her father in an effort to identify the vampire that had killed several of his children and threatened the rest. It was discovered that Sarah was the vampire when, according to witnesses, her eyes were opened and fixed, her hair and nails had grown, and her heart and arteries were filled with fresh red blood. Wow. Her organs were removed and then burned before she and her siblings were reburied. And according to an 1875 article, one family that was afflicted with disease believed that their dead father would not rest until he had drawn to himself the nine surviving members of the family. The sickly son, armed with a spade, exhumed his father and cut off his head. Oh my. (laughs) Okay, so they're accusing everybody else of being the vampire, but I gotta say, they act in real vampiric in response. I mean, at least they're only accusing dead people. Like, that's what generally happens is they're like, no, that creepy lady with a lot of cats, she must be the one kill her. Like, they're only chopping up bodies that were already dead. I'm like, fine, get your exercise. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, get your exercise. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) there's no argument that people were dying in Rhode Island, but it wasn't vampires sucking out their life forces. There was a much more mundane cause, tuberculosis. The disease historian Gene E. Abrams writes, had the distinction of being the leading cause of death in 19th and early 20th century America. As experts learned more about the disease and how it spread, exhumation was replaced by public health measures ranging from anti-spitting laws to changes (laughs) in ventilation. Mm. What started as a scare fueled by superstition ultimately led to advancements in public health. Ah, oh, the good oh, old nice. days. I yeah. know. It's either like adapt, overcome, or die. And they chose adapt and overcome. How inspiring. Yeah. And it is nice that like the common name for tuberculosis was consumption. Like it makes sense. Like you were sort of wasting away. So you can see how they maybe thought, oh, someone is draining them of their life force. That's what tuberculosis looks like, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm glad we don't have vampires nowadays, except for the sparkly ones. That's right. You would know him immediately. You wouldn't have to question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include ancient solar eclipse records reveal changes in Earth's rotation, the failed execution of a prisoner on death row, and is the body key to understanding consciousness? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.